So I get the chance this morning to introduce to you our new teaching pastor and his wife, Stephen Darcy, and they're just going to say hi for a moment. So welcome them as they come to the stage today. There you go. Hi, everyone. It's good to meet you all. Uh, my name's Steve. This is my wife, Darcy. And a little over 10 days ago, we packed up all of our belongings, waved goodbye to sunny San Diego, California. Aww. And I got to tell you, I, I've never been bad. more cold in my life. <laughs> it's freezing up here. Uh, <laughs> one person liked it. One person. That's awesome. Um, we're, we're just really excited to be here. Uh, like I said, this is my wife, Darcy. We've got two kids uh, Nolan and Nixon, and they are five and one years old. And uh, man, a while ago, God kind of was speaking to us. And it's interesting when you just submit to God and you buckle up and go on the ride, um, he's going to lead you on a huge, huge adventure. And so here we are. We've been praying um, for you guys. We've been praying for ourselves as well. And we're really excited just to see um, what God is doing here and to be a part of it. So um, on the one hand, thank you so much. And then on the other hand, I can't wait to do this with you. It's going to be amazing. So, yeah. So, Darcy, you're no stranger to the cold, right? You, right. You're used to this yeah, kind of so Northwest. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Bellingham. And um, thank you. Uh, <laughs> about 13 years ago, I moved down to Southern California for college. I went to Azusa Pacific where I met Steve. And he just won me over with his charming good looks. Um, and there I stayed. So, really? um, yeah. <laughs> it, worked. it worked. Yeah. You might have to teach me something about charm. Yeah, I got, yeah. I got like two moves. That's it. So. <laughs> they work, though. So. Well, family, we'll, we want to pray for these two and welcome them and uh, just encourage you guys to be praying for them as it can be really tough to relocate. We've done that as well before and to um, you know find yourself being a part of the family so we want to pray that that would happen quickly and a lot of that is up to you right so let's just pray for these guys jesus thank you so much that um, at the beginning of their lives you saw what was going to be and that you've invested in Stephen darcy and you have prepared them for this season where they get to join the family at north county and we're grateful for all you've done to prepare them and we just pray that they would enjoy their time, God, that they would just really feel a part of the family because they are, and that you would bless them, God, and give them quick connections here at North County. And bless their family, bless their kids as they relocated, and help them in every regard in, uh, in that process. So we just welcome them in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Thanks, you guys. Thank you. About that. So you can look forward to Steve preaching next weekend, so you'll get to hear him for the first time, and that'll be fun, so come on out for that. So lots of people have told me that they like me better when I'm jet-lagged. Uh, I don't know what to think about that. You know, like I can't just live perpetually jet-lagged all the time just to make you guys happy. I don't know what you want me to do, you know? So I thought I would start just staying up every Saturday night, all night long, and then, and then come and preach on Sunday morning. So today we're going to talk about focus faith to do good. Focus faith to do good. And I know that, you know, we think about doing good and, and we think it just kind of comes naturally. We do good things. And part of that's true. But there is a goodness in our lives that comes through focus faith. There's that next level of goodness that God wants us to embrace and to learn about in our lives and to push ourselves and to press ourselves to where we're not only living in the general normal goodness of our everyday life, where we're good to one another, 
But the goodness that comes that brings actual change to our culture or change to people's lives makes life different for them than it was before. That's the kind of goodness we want to talk about that today. And that kind of goodness requires focused faith because I don't think that comes naturally to us. I think that that is something that the Holy Spirit brings out of a heart that's embraced his vision or embraced his desire to do something for someone else. So I I saw a lot of this kind of good in India last week, and I told you I would share a few things about India, so I'm going to do that this morning. Uh, And to start with, I want to tell you a little bit more about a man who we support through Ichthus Ministry, and his name is Ramchan. Uh, Here's a picture of Ramchan in the group. I think I showed you this picture last week. He's the one on the far right in the gray tone vest that he has there. Uh, His name is Ramchan, and this is the man who Kelly Voss has been partnering with for about 20 years. She met him when she was a student with YWAM, and she began reaching out into this tribe called the Banchata tribe. You can read about this, just Google Banchata, and this tribe for the last 500 years has been selling their firstborn daughter into the sex trade to provide for their families. 12 years old, these little girls begin turning tricks for their family so that their family can eat. And so 20 years ago, Ramchan and his team and Kelly and many other churches began reaching into this tribe to help them re-educate the girls, uh, help bring them to the place where the girls can become something besides, you know, working in the sex industry, like they can become nurses or they can work in the hotel industry, and just helping them um, also learn about Christ as they go through this process. And so here's a picture of Kelly and one of the girls from the sex trade, this little girl is now 27. She started when she was 12. She's still currently in the sex industry. We got to meet her, and we got to go into her home and just love her a little bit, you know, in Christ. And she actually had her first baby when she was 17, and that baby ended up in an orphanage that Kelly and Ramchan helped to start. And so this little child would be about 10 years old now and is being raised in a loving environment and has a hope and a future because of what Kelly, Ramchan, other churches, and now North County is doing, that we are doing good. We're making a difference. We're changing lives, literally, for people around the world. Let me tell you a little bit about this story. There's a stretch of highway called the Banchata Highway where all these villages are stretched out for miles and miles and miles. It's also called Nemuch Highway. And we got to visit there, and these villages stretched out for miles and miles. Uh, Next slide. There you go. These villages, these are actually people in the sex trade. And you see the little cot down on the right there? That little cot is where, you know, dozens and dozens of those will be out along the highway, and women and girls will sit on these cots, and they'll wait for uh, the next trucker to come and pull in. And that trucker will get out of his truck, and he'll walk across the highway, and he will pick a woman or a girl and he will go in and have sex with her. And the going rate, we asked what the going rate was, and they said it's about 300 rupees for an average girl, whatever that means. And 200 of these rupees goes to their handler, which will be an older boy, like a 20, 30-year-old young man, or to an older woman. Uh, 200 rupees to them and 100 rupees to the family of the girl, which is about $1.40. So for about $1.40... Uh, starting at about the age of 12, these little girls will begin um, making income for the family in this way. 
And so the good that Ramchan and that Kelly and others are doing to bring change to this 500-year-old tradition uh, is changing life for a lot of these young people. And many of them are giving their hearts to Christ. Whole villages are being impacted by Jesus. Uh, Well water is being brought and clean water to drink to some of these villages. And 50 of these girls that would have been living in this in one of these villages is now in, are now in an orphanage called, called the House of Palms. The House of Palms that Kelly and Ramchan and other churches have helped to build. So these are girls that their parents gave them permission to move into this orphanage. And they'll get to be raised there. And they will get to have a hope and possibly an education. So I'm just happy to say that you are involved in some of this good that's happening around the world. Now, you're right, you might remember back in 2008 when the great persecution, I mean, there's always persecution in India, but the great persecution of Orissa, remember reading about that about 12 years ago? Uh, Christians were being persecuted and were being killed. Uh, one of the headlines was of this little uh, teenage girl who was set on fire and uh, burned, but not to death. And so she kind of became a voice uh, for the persecution. Well, Ramchan heard about this, 12 years ago, and he went to Orissa, and he risked his own life, and he risked the possibility of being persecuted himself, and he rescued about 250 orphans. Now, he went without knowing what he was going to do. He went without a plan. This took focused faith. He had no idea how he was going to find homes or housing for these kids, but 250 orphans, he's like a legend in India for what he did. He led them to safety to a warehouse and over time kept them fed, kept them alive, and got them all housed either with families or in orphanages. And some of them are in the orphanage, one of the orphanages that we got to visit and are going to school there. And so since, since then, Ramchan and Kelly and others have been building schools and orphanages, and there's just been an incredible amount of focused faith that's been needed in order to do this. And so you've got to ask the question, why? Why does an Indian man named Ramchan, who probably could have done a lot of things with his life, uh, he's not from the lowest class, he's from like a middle class, uh, why would he risk his life to help the orphans and to help the oppressed of his country? And I can give you the answer because I know him, I've spent time with him, and it's because Jesus is Lord of his life. That's really the answer, that Jesus is Lord of his life. Jesus is not only Savior, of his life. He doesn't just have eternal life waiting for him, although that's really important, right? But he also has really received the lordship of Christ in his life to do and to accomplish what God has called him to do and accomplish in his time on earth. And this is Ramchan with his wife and with his daughter. So that's number one in your notes today that we do good because Christ is Lord of our life. We think about doing even more good, and we think about ways that God might want to advance us or bring us into something more to do with our lives because Christ is Lord of our lives. And so Peter writes on in 1 Peter 3:13. He says, "Who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you or bless you for it." So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Peter's saying, really, that if you worship Christ as Lord of your life, the worry, the threats, the risk of stepping out in faith will be minimized. And let me break this down a little bit for you. The word reward here, or blessed, 
uh, comes from the Greek word makaria, which actually means to be highly privileged. You know, when we think about the word blessing, right, when, uh, here in the West, when we say we've been blessed, what do we normally mean? It means that we have a good income. It means that we have a, a nice house. It means that our family is doing great. Uh, the blessing that we equate with God is usually something that is comfortable for us, right? Something that makes life better for us. But Peter writes the exact opposite. Peter writes that the blessed life is actually the highly privileged life of partnering with Christ and the work he wants to do on this planet and even suffering for it. That's what Peter writes. So the next time you think about blessing, don't be so quick to equate God's blessing with comfort, but maybe think about the fact that sometimes in life, God's blessing is really the privilege of doing work with him on this planet to bring the kingdom to people and to bring people into the kingdom. And sometimes that involves risk and resistance and persecution, but we're not afraid of what people can do for us because Christ is Lord of our life and we place our life in his hands. Amen? That is exactly how we should be thinking. David said in Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm going to admit to you that when we were visiting the Banchata villages along the Banchata Highway, there was a moment where I felt a little bit of worry. And it's because some of these handlers came out, young men in their 20s, and they were not happy that we were there. And they were giving us a look, you know, the look, standing off, two or three of them over here, you know, the look. And at one point, I saw one of these guys take off, and he ran across the highway, and he ran, started to run down the highway, and the hackles went up on the back of my neck. You know the hackles? Like when you're walking downtown Seattle at night and you go down an alley, you know those hackles? Hackles went up on the back of my neck and I thought to myself, we need to go. Who is this young man going to go find and bring back with him? You know, and so I, I began to feel kind of that bit of worry or that bit of, of even fear that was coming up. The hackles on the back of my neck. We left in the next few minutes. I didn't say anything. We left anyway. And I was actually kind of grateful that we left because I didn't want anyone to be harmed on my team, right? But Jesus said it like this. He said in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So when you're thinking about letting God use you in areas that are risky, not necessarily going to India, but just let's say you know, getting out of your comfort zone. And it can be risky emotionally. It doesn't have to be physically. You know, as we begin to share Christ with those around us, it can put us in harm's way emotionally, and, and people can say things and do things about us or to us that aren't kind because there is an enemy of our souls on this planet, right? But what I want to say to you is that it's risky doing good. It's risky doing good, even when it's in the context of Linden or Whatcom County or the Lower Mainland. It's risky doing good. You help people, and sometimes they hurt you. And that's just the fact of doing ministry. This has happened to me a lot over the last 36 years of ministry. I've had a lot of times where there's been great things that have happened with people. And then I've had some times where I have felt hurt with the very people that I have done my best to help. You know, here in the West, it's less likely that our bodies are going to get hurt, right? You're mostly not going to get set on fire by people. You're mostly not going to get beat up by people. 
But it's going to be more an emotional hurt or an emotional pain. Do you remember the ditty that we said as kids? I did. I don't know if you did. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is not true. That is not true. We used to say it in the neighborhood or to our brothers and sisters, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. You know, when they were being mean, words do hurt you. And things that people do can hurt you. You can feel betrayal or you can feel abandonment. And so did Jesus. Do you know there was a day that he turned to his 12 disciples and he said to them, are you going to leave me too? Because crowds were vanishing. People were leaving him. A lot of those other disciples besides the 12 were going. And Jesus actually turned to his disciples and he said, are you going to leave me too? And that's when Peter took the opportunity to say, Lord, where else would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And so we trust God's sovereignty and we trust God's goodness to do the good things that he is calling us to do, whatever those are for you. They may not be going to India. They may not be going somewhere around the world. But right here in your neighborhood, what is the good that God is calling you to do? How can you impart and befriend and love and come into the lives of those that need to know Christ? So we focus our faith on doing good. Now, that being said, I do think that there is a best good. I think there's a best good. And I think the best good that we could have is to partner with God to bring the kingdom to earth and to bring people into the kingdom. I think that's the best good because that's eternity, right? And there are ways that we can make an impact on the world that will change lives forever. I'm going to talk about a few of those ways this morning that we're involved as a church But Micah said in Micah 6, 8, and this is where we understand what God wants from us. He said, He has shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly? In other words, bring justice to the oppressed, help to rescue little girls from the sex trade, to love mercy, to bring kindness, to to bring a a mercy to people's lives that, that need mercy, to understand when people are going through hard times and not heap on condemnation, but rather enter into their story and help them as they struggle with what they're going through in life, and to walk humbly with thy God, to realize that there but for the grace of God go I. Any of us could be in these conditions. So this was the ministry of Jesus. He rescued people while he was on the planet. And we are privileged, we are blessed to partner with him to do those good works as well. And this is work that's being done in India. We got Mike here in Haiti, just got back after a couple of weeks, right? So let's thank the Lord for bringing him back safely. Thank the Lord for that. But it's bringing the kingdom of God to earth, making a difference in the lives of people. You know, around here in missions, we call it the peace plan. Uh, It's planting churches that promote reconciliation. It's equipping servant leaders. You got that slide? There it is. It's assisting the poor. It's caring for the sick. And it's educating the next generation. These are the things we try to embrace uh, as we reach out into our world. And how many of you know that if you meet the felt needs of people, then they're going to give you access to their spiritual need as well? So you start with felt needs. You start with education. You start with, you know, assisting the sick and caring for the poor. And then you move into their relationship with Christ. And you say, there's a reason why we're doing this. And that reason is Jesus. Amen? Amen. 
So that's what we do. That's what Jesus did. This is what we're doing in India through the Life-Giving Network and Project 92 and ICTHUS and through New Generation in Haiti and, and uh, the few others. Uh, today I'm talking about ICTHUS because I just got back. One of the children's homes we visited was called the Sedaris School. And this school houses, it's really, really cool because they house orphans from that Orissa persecution I talked about. So these kids are now in their teens. And they house some kids from the leprosy colony. And they house some kids from their Banchata tribe, from the sex trade tribe. Uh, Seventeen of these kids are now in college. They still live in the orphanage. Here's, here they are. These are kids rescued from the sex trade villages. There's Kelly in the back. These are kids that were taken out of the leprosy villages and raised in the orphanage. And these are kids that came from Orissa. Now, these are kids that did not have a hope and did not have a future. And because of people who decided to do good, including you, these people have hope and a future. And we're really excited about these students because they're in college. And the way it works in India is you do a year of school and then you pay for it. So it's like going out to eat. You know, here you got to pay for school before you go. There you go through a year of school and then you pay for it. So these are all moving up. They're all testing in to their next year of school. But all of them need to pay for last year. And so we've had a bunch of people step up already and say, hey, I want to be a part of that. So if that's you today, feel free to talk to me. But we've had a lot of response of people who say, I want to be, I want to be a part of this. Each one of these students has signed an agreement that they're going to go back and be a positive influence. They're going to help their village, the village they would have grown up in. They're going to go back, and they're going to be a positive influence in their village. And that's how you change whole communities. And that's how you let God work through the goodness that you do. Now, there's all kinds of ways to live the good life, but it always involves bringing the kingdom to people, you know, just the goodness of God to people, and bringing people into the kingdom. So finding ways to do good, living the good life, shows, number two in your notes today, it shows, that, it shows people that you belong to Christ. This is the ultimate goal. For you to be a do-gooder for Jesus... The ultimate goal is that it would show people that you belong to Christ and that they would want that relationship too. Here's just a few pictures I want to go through. I told you I'd show you some pictures. So this is a bunch of kids in a slum. We got to visit. This structure that you see is a tent that Alaska Structures and Garrett Boyle, who goes to our church, got to set up in their slum about 10 years ago. And they use this as a school. They use it as a community center. They use it as a church. And uh, these little kids are just really thankful that there's a place that they can go because everything else is shacks and shambles. And this is the one thing they have that, that says we're worth, we're worth something. We have value. So these are uh, some of the house leaders in one of the dorms we went to. And on the left is Suresh, his wife Esther. Suresh was born into the leprosy colony. He's in his 20s now, I would say. He was born in the leprosy colony. When he was three, his mom died, and his dad put him in a state-run orphanage. He grew up in the orphanage. When he was 18, he heard about this place called YWAM, and he didn't know what YWAM was. So he went to see what it was, scared him to death. He was not a Christian, so he fled. But then he, uh, it got the better of him, and he went back, still not a Christian, and he entered DTS, and he got led to Christ during his DTS, and now he has given his life to his people, and he is investing in the leprosy community. He is one of the house parents, 
And uh, one of the proponents of this school and of this orphanage where these 17 students attend. So pretty awesome. God has redeemed his life. This is a group of ladies that grew up in the sex trade. So most of these ladies probably were 12 when they began. Uh, They've been taken out of the sex trade, been taught the trade of sewing. And so now they sew uniforms and things like that for schools. Pretty cool, huh? Change lives. These are the kids that are in the HIV-positive orphanage. I showed you last week Big Daddy. These are his kids. And when we got there, we asked, what can we give them as a gift? And the house mom said they would love a stuffed animal. And so we were thinking, stuffed animal? And she goes, oh, no, big stuffed animal, right? (laughs) So we went to the store, and we bought out the store, I think 20 stuffed animals. They're about 6 bucks each in India. And these kids were so blessed. They were so blessed. They were so happy. And so the little girls took their stuffed animals and tucked them into their beds. The boys began hitting each other with them. And it was just (laughs) the best thing ever to see the difference between girls and boys. Next. These are some of these little princesses who were born with HIV-positive blood. Um, We were hearing a story from Big Daddy. He told us that a couple of years ago, the state stopped giving away or helping with the medication for the kids because they just wanted them to die. And so he had to drive to the next state in order to get medication. Um, Many of you contributed to buying medication for these kids for the next year, so they are fully funded to uh, have medication for the next year, which is pretty awesome. Uh, That's the picture of the table. We took them out for dinner one night, and they loved that. They just love it. They don't get this, right? So they were blessed. Is that the last one? Nope, one more. There's Big Rob. Rob Rob and Donna go to our church. Rob was 6'5". I was like 6'4". Kelly's like 6 feet. We were a sight to see in India, let me tell you. (laughs) To walk down the street, you know, was fun. So I show you these pictures just to say that you are doing good around the world. And you're a part of the ministry that's happening in these places. And the money that we give to Ichthus helps to fund the staff for all of these different organizations that need staff in order to run these places. So you're helping to literally give the kids safe people to live with. Peter put it like this in verse 15. He said, if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. In other words, don't confuse people by having one story, the story of Christ, but then having a, another story of a bad attitude or, or just you know, being a bad person. You know what I mean? Make those two um, work together. You know, show the good life that you have in Christ. He says, then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. You know, there's three things that I sort of try to require when I travel uh, to third world countries because it helps keep me healthy and I'm useless if I'm not healthy. And these three, three things are wireless. I need wireless so that I can stay connected to you and to my staff. Um, secondly is a hot pot, you know, a water pot with water to make what in the morning? And I always pack my own coffee because you can't get good coffee in India. And then the third thing is an exercise room. I try to make sure there's an exercise room because I know that if I can get some exercise, I can be a lot more productive uh, on the ground in India. And so the first morning of our trip, I was on the treadmill. I was running, looking out over India. The window was open and there's this five-star hotel and there's India. 
uh, pretty remarkable sight. And so I'm running on this treadmill, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me so clearly. And he said to me, Kurt, remember to breathe out. And when you do, don't waste your breath. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I started to think about that. And I was reminded that, you know, for us to keep alive, to stay alive, we've got to breathe in oxygen, right? And it keeps our brain alive, and, and we've got to have our brain. And so we breathe in, right? We breathe in. And the same is true spiritually. Spiritually speaking, we breathe in all the time. We do that through taking in the Word of God. We do that through um, being connected to the Holy Spirit. We do that through fellowship with one another as we encourage each other. We do that through worshiping together. We are built up. We are fed. We, we breathe in all these things of our spiritual life. And God says, don't forget to breathe out. Don't just keep it all inside for yourself. In fact, you'll become toxic if you do. But find ways to breathe out and then, and then make it matter. You know, be life-giving as you breathe out. And, and take that into whatever area of life you live. But use your life. Don't just breathe in and, you know, become this healthy, happy Christian for eternity. But breathe out and make a difference in this world that you're in. And that can mean something to any one of us in the room, whether you're a school teacher, whether you're in construction, whether it doesn't matter you know, raising kids at home, it doesn't matter. Breathe out life-giving breath. You know, when we breathe out after we've breathed in physically, there's a lot of oxygen left in the breath. There's a lot of life left that goes wasted. And God does not want us to waste our breath. And as Peter writes about this, he says simply that this is sharing your hope story. We all have a hope story. We all have a way that Jesus has made a difference in our life. So don't waste that story. Don't just breathe in, but breathe out your hope story. And also add to that by doing good, by backing up your story. Don't have a story that doesn't have backup. But have a story that's backed up by how you live your life, by how you do good. Now this passage of Scripture contains the verse that we use in apologetics that talks about giving a reason or giving a defense for our faith. And it's this word, explain. And it comes from the Greek word, apologia. And this is where we get the word where we're talking about, like when Arthur runs the class on apologetics, we're talking about learning ways to be able to have a defense for our faith. But notice what Peter is writing, that what we say needs to be backed up by what they see. What we say needs to be backed up by what we see. Don't just argue with people about the Bible, but rather in a gentle way, explain the hope that you have in your life because Jesus is Lord of your life. Another story, I told you just a little bit about this from uh, Ramshan's life, but Ramshan got to know this guy, Rashid. Can you bring that back up? Thank you. And here's a picture of them. So Ramshan's on the right, and I mentioned this last week. Rashid is next to him. They used to be enemies. Like Rashid used to hate Ramshan. And Ramshan befriended him at the risk of suffering at the hands of a Muslim man, at the risk of persecution, at the risk of at least not being liked. He began to pursue this guy. I think God told him to. And somewhere in that pursuit, uh, Rashid ended up with a need. He ended up needing 5,000 rupees, which isn't a lot of money by our standards, but it was a lot for Ramchan. And it was to help them with the birth of their child. 
they were short some money. So Ramchan loaned him the money. And Rashid was supposed to pay it back little by little by little. Well, they had some more expenses with the birth of their child. It cost them more than they thought. So he couldn't pay Ramchan back. And so Rashid, who was not a Christian yet, began to feel guilty about this. And Ramchan would come and visit him. And Rashid would tell his wife, throw away all the tea so that you can't make him tea so that he won't come and visit. Because I feel guilty about this. Like if you can't do hospitality, then you can't welcome people in, right? So throw away the tea. That's what he told his wife. Ramshan kept pressing in. And he said, Rashid, don't worry about it. You'll pay it back when, when you're ready. And as the story goes, Ramshan would stand out on the street and would shout in to Rashid's wife to make sure she was home before he would go in because he was afraid to face Rashid, Rashid alone. And so Ramshan would wait until his wife was home. Over three years, Ramshan's persistence paid off. And finally, Rashid said, Who is this God? Who is this Jesus? And he ends up giving his life to Christ. And now there's a hundred Muslim converts in this city, four million people, uh, very secret. You can't tell their names. You can't, you know, go public with these guys because it's very, very dangerous to be a Muslim convert in this city. And so four million people. My point is this, by doing good, by doing good, by pursuing, by persisting, even at the risk of not being liked, Ramshan has the opportunity now for a whole city to be impacted, a whole Muslim world to be impacted in this city of 4 million people. Remarkable. You don't know what God's going to do with one friendship. And so you do what God says to do, right? And you do good to those he calls you to do good. Brings us to number three in our notes today, our last point. Be willing to suffer for doing good like Jesus suffered for us. Be willing to suffer like Jesus. Peter writes, remember, it's better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Now, if you have a pen or a highlighter, highlight that verse. In all of the Bible, this one verse gives the most complete description of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here it is, right here in one verse. So God's will for us, I would say, not just maybe does, but I would say includes suffering for doing good. And again, we get confused about what God's blessing is. God's blessing is the privilege of suffering for identifying with Christ. And we get this wrong all the time. We think that we're in God's graces when life's perfect. Not necessarily so. You may be way off in left field for what God wants you to do. And so you've got to find yourself a little uncomfortable with Jesus. You're going to experience some level of suffering, but it's worthwhile suffering for Jesus. There's a cost for the kingdom to come to this earth and for people to join the kingdom. And we get to join Jesus in his suffering for that to happen. Now, Peter writes... And I find this a little bit funny. He writes, be sure you're suffering for the right things. Now, we all know that sometimes the results of our choices get us into suffering, right? I have suffered my share for making wrong choices. And, you know, I talk to people all the time that that's the case. They've made some bad choices, and now they're suffering for it. And Peter says, don't do that. Stop suffering for doing wrong. Get out of the wrong life 
and start suffering for doing right. Suffer for the sake of Christ. It's worth it because it will make all the difference to a dying and a lost world. And don't you want to make a difference? Don't you want to make a difference? I look around the room and I see difference makers. I see difference makers. Some of you who are already making a difference. And some of you who are saying, God, help me make a difference. I want to make a difference. Show me what to do. Call me to that one friendship that's going to end up saving Muslims in a four million person city. You know? God, show me what to do. And Peter reminds us in this text why Christ chose to suffer. Why is suffering so important? And why is, it, why is it so important for us to identify with Christ in his suffering? And here it is. First, Christ suffered for something nobody else could do for us. He suffered for our sins. Nobody else could pull this off. Nobody else could be effective for this. Jesus was the atonement for us. What that means is his forgiving of our sins uh, brought us into that oneness with God again, reconciled us with God. In fact, if you want to think about the word atonement, spell it out at one meant. At one meant. At one with God meant. That's really what atonement means. It means to be brought back into relationship with God. And Jesus suffered on our behalf so that this could happen. In the English Standard Version, it says, The righteous for the unrighteous. Dikaios hyperatikon. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus, totally righteous, without sin, suffering so that the unrighteous, that's us, could be brought back into relationship with God. And that is worth, my friends, that is worth identifying with. That is even worth suffering for. That we could be a part of bringing people back into relationship with God. Like the Word tells us, we're a part of this process of reconciliation, right? That's our job. So Jesus died for our sins, but he didn't stay dead. And this is the best part. This is the best news of the gospel. Though he was put to death in the body, which means the flesh, he was made alive by the Spirit. And when Peter writes this to us, by the Spirit translates into the Greek pneumati. Now, how many of you guys have like an air gun or, or a, you know, an air tank, right? A pneumatic some kind of a tool that's pneumatic. That's where we get the word pneumatic. By the Spirit, that the Spirit raised Christ from the dead. And Paul says in Romans 8, that's the same Spirit that lives in us. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, lives in us. The powerful Spirit of God that conquered death and raised Jesus up lives in you and me. And so we can do the things that God calls us to do because we have His powerful Spirit living in us. And that is why we choose to do good because we have the good God living in us. We choose to do good. We choose to step outside our comfort zone. We choose to go beyond what's familiar to us. We choose to enter into relationship with somebody that might not like us and care for them. Maybe there's that one crotchety neighbor, right? You need to get to know. That's some that one person that nobody else likes. That you need to get to know. I don't know what it is for you, but Jesus wants us to enter into kingdom work and to expose ourselves to the possibility of suffering. I think it's really remarkable that in this very text, Peter goes a little bit sideways just to show us how far God will go into darkness to proclaim his message. 
And it's this passage that a lot of scholars just have a hard time uh, making anything out of. And it's in 1 Peter verse 19, 319. It seems like, like Peter kind of leaves the theme, but if you think about it in the terms of how far will God go for people? How far will God go for those created beings that he loves? Then it makes sense. And Peter says this, that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his ark, only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. Have you ever seen this statement before, this verse? Anybody not ever seen that? Let me see. There were a few last service. I've never seen that before. So apparently, sometime between his death and his resurrection, Jesus went and preached or proclaimed the gospel message to someone. And scholars aren't entirely sure who that was. Some scholars say this is the most difficult scripture in all of the Bible to interpret. So I'm going to give you three options, okay? But here's what we do know, that God allowed Jesus to go into the places of darkness. This would have been Hades that he would have gone into in order to proclaim his gospel, in order to preach his word. And we don't know if people actually got saved in that exchange or what exactly happened. But the point is God went. God went. So here's some of your options. Uh, Some say that Jesus went and preached to the disobedient angels from Genesis 6. Those angels that came down on the earth and they were disobedient, right? Some say that Kind of like the scripture indicates that he went and preached to the spirits of those rebellious people who were alive while Noah built the ark. Those people that laughed at Noah for 120 years. That for some reason God went and preached to their spirits in Hades. Um, The other one is that perhaps God went and spoke to and preached to all of the spirits of all of the people that ever lived before Jesus came. And they would all be located in Hades, right? That's the waiting place. It's not hell. Hell has not happened yet. So it's Hades. Hades is where people that are outside of Christ go and wait for judgment. So here's the question. Who did God go to? And we don't know. We don't know. It's pretty interesting to think about, though. But we do know he went to darkness to proclaim the gospel message to those people that hadn't heard. Pretty remarkable. Or those angels that needed to know. So Peter finishes up, though, in giving us what I think is really important from this text, and that is water baptism. Water baptism. That's really what this text is about. And he says in 21, Water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It, meaning water baptism, is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Peter is saying is that it's not water baptism that saves you. It's the resurrection of Jesus that saves you. But water baptism is your appeal, or in another version it says it's your pledge. Uh, Many scholars say that the Greek word used here is pledge. So water baptism is your pledge to God of your life for the fact that he saved you and washed you clean from your sins. And that's what Peter is saying here. So In other words, we need to go do good because of what Jesus has done for us. And Peter would say baptism is the very first good you should do. Now, I know it's weird because here in the West, you know, we might get saved when we're 12 and not baptized till we're 27 or something like that, right? 
Well, back in that day, first century church, people got saved and baptized. Same day. Same week. I mean, it all happened. So literally, this would have been the first good that a person would do after giving their heart to Christ. They believe, and then they take their first act of goodness or faithfulness or pledge their life to Jesus, and they go under the waters of baptism. So baptism is really my pledge to break from my old sinful life and to enter into this new life that Jesus has made possible for me. That old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. So if you're here in the crowd today and you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you. Email me, text me, call me, and we will get you baptized because it is the good that God wants you to do to pledge your life to Him and and to be public about that. And say, God, you gave your life for me through Jesus Christ, and now I give my life to you. That's really what baptism is all about. It's identifying with Christ. Now, I will say this as I close, that back in the day in the first century, baptism had a severe price tag. If you got baptized, you were targeted because they knew you were a follower of Christ. The same is true in India today. If you get baptized in India today, there's a target on your head. That's why baptisms are secret. We have them out in the middle of nowhere in a creek that hopefully nobody's going to tell the the government authorities because you can lose your life or you can end up in jail. So baptism for us is the first good that we can do. And now I want to close just by saying, verse 22, Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God. All the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. I want you to notice there's an incredible reward given to Jesus Christ for his willingness to suffer for us, to suffer for our sin. He has given all authority over everything that's created. That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he wants to share that glory with us. He wants to share that glory with us. And so our reward is when we enter into his suffering, when we identify with his suffering by building his kingdom, by bringing the kingdom to earth or by bringing people into the kingdom, That our reward is that Jesus shares his glory and his honor with us. That's why we have this partnership of reconciliation with him. And so this morning as we close, I'd love it if you could stand with me. And I want to pray with you this morning. As we think about focus faith for doing good. Okay? Focus faith for doing good. And again, as I look around the room today, I see people who do good. Like I look around the room, I'm seeing my friends who do good. And there's a lot of you here in the room today. You are do-gooders for Jesus. And I love that about you. And I love being in a church that, you know, really grabs hold to what God wants us to do. And and we try to do that together. But I also know that God is always calling me personally upward and onward. And the good I did yesterday may not be the good he wants me to do tomorrow. And so I want to pray for you and for me that... That we would say to the Lord your day, like the old hymn, Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. I'm the potter, you are the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. As I am waiting, yielded and still. And so I want to pray for you because there's no greater privilege than entering into the suffering of Jesus and bringing his kingdom to earth or bringing people to his kingdom. I just want to pray that God will lead you into that next season of what that looks like for your life and for mine, okay? And as a church, let's bow our heads. Jesus, 
Thank you today that you don't leave us as you found us. Thank you today, Lord, that you love us so much that you call us into partnership. God, for everybody in the room today, we ask that you'd help us understand what that means. God, help us to be honest about our life and to say, Lord, take me to the next stage or season of my life and help me to be what I've not been. Help me to do what I've not done, Lord, by your power in me, not for uh, any um, reward that I might get on this earth, God, but simply for the privilege it is to join you in your ministry. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to worship our way out of the service today.